Good morning. How we doing? Very good. Well, if you see me moving a little funny, it's because I've painted ceiling yesterday, and uh, I'm not as young as I used to be. Sometimes you're just reminded of that. I don't like it. If you're visiting with us today, we're glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, we have some fun stuff we're going to be jumping into. We are in John's Gospel, continuing our series, The Hidden Music of John. And uh, today we get the interesting story of a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And so let's just jump into our text. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. So there's a few interesting details even as we begin this, this story, this narrative with uh, Nicodemus. First, we know that he's someone important. He represents a group of people, uh, the, Jew, uh, the Pharisees and the people who were the religious leaders at that time. And then we're giving an another interesting detail right away. He comes to Jesus, not at daytime, but at night. So why the night? It could mean that Nicodemus was afraid to publicly associate with Jesus, but maybe that he was curious enough about him that he goes at night to find out more about who Jesus says he is. Night could signify, because we know that John uses a symbolic language, it could signify that Nicodemus in some way, he's in the dark. And also, night and day, darkness and light, we find that language used here and again and again in John's Gospel. For example, the night. So with this story, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Chapter 9 is, says, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And then chapter 11, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And then related to the betrayer of Jesus from chapter 13, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So another thing that's interesting about these beginning verses is not only does he represent a group of people, Nicodemus, but he is among those who claim to know. We know you are a teacher. No one can do these things apart from the blessing of God or God's being with him. So he claims to know something about Jesus. But in the face of Nicodemus' certitudes, Jesus shows him what he doesn't, in fact, know. The depth of Nicodemus' knowledge is shallow, 
regarding who Jesus really is. He just admits Jesus as a teacher who God is with. He doesn't even necessarily see Jesus as ranking with the prophets, much less being the Messiah, much less being the Son of God, much less being God. So, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. So it's, it kind of strikes me the greeting that Nicodemus gives and then the reply that Jesus gives that it's, it's almost kind of disjointed, it seems to me. And I kind of wonder what, what is going on there, this apparent shift in conversation. So Nicodemus shows a certain level of respect to Jesus. He doesn't just, you know, he's not just disrespectful, but he uh, claims to know something about Jesus. But Jesus gives Nicodemus something to help him understand better. And that's why the, there's a little hiccup in the conversation. And I think this is an important lesson for us as well. We come to Jesus in the self-satisfaction of our knowledge. We know something about you. We know a feeling of being righteous, being in the in-group that knows, a feeling of superiority sometimes. And because sometimes we lack humility and think we know who Jesus is, we are not open to him showing us who he really is and what he is really like. When we assume we know God, and when we assume we know people, and we know what the right thing is to do in situations, Sometimes it prevents us from listening to people and to being open to the ways of God. Uh, just as an example, the way I had to learn, the, learn this, as a young married man, it took me years to figure out that when Alicia came to me with a problem, she wasn't always looking for a solution. She wanted to be heard. She wanted to be listened to. She wanted me to come into the situation with her and try to see it from her eyes and her perspective. And, you know, sometimes in my ignorance, I would be like, it's, it's kind of silly to feel that way. If you just do X, Y, and Z, it'll fix your problems. Just do this and it'll be, that won't be an issue anymore. And then I'd be confused because I was in the doghouse then. <laughs> and so I'd be like a little bit huffy about it. You came to me with a problem and I told you how to fix it. Why are you mad at me? And then Alicia would be like, I don't know, just leave me alone. <laughs> Regretting that she had ever even brought it up to me in the first place. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn to set aside 
our presumptions and our prejudices that we carry about people. And sometimes we need to set aside our clever solutions to people's problems and instead just listen to them. Just learn from them. Learn what the real issues are. Stop finishing people's sentences. Stop with your clever solutions and just listen. Listen to what they have to say. So Nicodemus, he sounds a little bit incredulous here to me, and he puts things in a very graphic physical terms. How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb. He's pointing out the absurdity, he thinks, of Jesus' statement. But he's also betraying the fact that he's thinking in just physical terms. But in the hidden music of John's gospel, we've already been introduced to a situation where people Jesus is interacting with are just thinking on a physical level. And Jesus is trying to help them to a deeper spiritual understanding. So it was in the last chapter where he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. And they're like, it took 46 years. How's that work? They're just thinking on this level. Jesus is trying to get them to think on another level. And then we find that here again with Nicodemus. It's a, a literary tool that John is using. And then he keeps using this. Well, we'll talk about Jesus as the bread of life. These Jews were confused and they're starting to think, what, who's this guy talking about cannibalism, eating my flesh, drinking blood? What is that about? It betrays a certain level of thinking where Jesus is inviting us to see things new and to learn new truths. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. This is clearly a reference to baptism. Baptism is a death to the self, to be resurrected, to live your life for Jesus. It's a new birth into a new life, and it's not a fleshly physical birth, is it? Jesus, uh, Nicodemus is talking to Jesus, and he's, how does this work? And Jesus is saying, this isn't the same kind of birth. It's not a physical birth with amniotic fluid and blood and placentas and umbilical cords, but a spiritual birth through baptism to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, who teaches us how to live in the power and the resources of the kingdom of God. You see, Nicodemus comes as a Jew, and the Jewish thought of that time was that they would be saved by merit of being a Jew. And then Jesus says something a little bit disturbing. No, you have to be born again, meaning you have to claim me as Lord. You have to show 
that you are dying to yourself and being reborn to live life in the Spirit, living for and loving and working for God. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So like the wind, the Spirit moves where and when He chooses. The Spirit is a personality beyond our control, beyond our ability to manipulate. And like the wind, we cannot see the Spirit with our own physical eyes. But like a tree in the wind, we perceive the effects of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts. We can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit like wind on my cheek or breath in my lungs. And for those who are born of the Spirit, we become childlike in our trust, being okay, not knowing everything, not having to control everything. We simply listen to the Spirit of God, and like a sail in the wind, we let ourselves be guided by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit calls us to follow Jesus more totally and to become like Him. The Spirit calls us to live in communion with God and with each other. We do not always know where she is leading us. We cannot control the Spirit. We must let ourselves be guided by her. God intervenes in our lives precisely when, he open, when we opened up and let God show us the way. It is into the place of our poverty and insecurity that God comes. It is when we do not know what to do and ask God for light that God gives us light. I like that quote. Uh, I like him referring to the Holy Spirit as a, as a woman, too. God has feminine attributes. We tend to not speak about those all the time, but they're there, and what a beautiful thing. So I'm thankful for that, and especially related to the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of God. A lot of times, Sophia is thought of in the feminine sense, but it is in that place of surrendering of not knowing, of not having all the answers, of not coming to Jesus and saying, I know who you are. It's in that place of not knowing, in our own brokenness, in our own littleness, in that place of humility, of asking God for help, of asking us to teach us something true, that we find the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Well, our friend Nicodemus, he's still not getting it. He is still in the dark at this point in the conversation. So he says, how can this be, Nicodemus asked, about being born again? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. 
but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So clearly Jesus expected that Nicodemus should understand the significance of new birth out of his background as a distinguished Jewish teacher, of someone who is steeped in the Torah and in the Old Testament. He should have got this reference. So that made me wonder, what language is Jesus using here that has already been used in the Old Testament? Well, references to the Spirit, references to water, references to birth or rebirth. The Spirit is constantly referred to uh, as God's principle of life and creation. The Spirit is at work, the taking of breath, ruach, wind, or breath. But the Old Testament writers also look forward to a time when the Spirit will be poured out on all humanity. Because in the Old Testament, it's usually associated with a specific prophet or a particular king. It's not out there for everyone. But yet, there was a hope that God's Spirit would come at one point and be accessible to everyone. So we read prophecies like this from Joel. I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then the prophet Ezekiel, I didn't even touch Isaiah or others, there's so many. But from the 36th chapter, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So water, cleansing, washing, renewal, a new heart, a new spirit made available. And then the early church, they would see this as a reference to baptism as well. When I, baptism, being resurrected, dying to yourself through baptism, immersing yourself like going into a grave to come up, to be born again, to live a new life. Ezekiel 37 says this, when I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Somehow Nicodemus, who claims to be in the know, shows that he doesn't know very much, even though Jesus expects that he should know some of these things. These things should be familiar to us or to him. So Jesus goes on now to be even more specific and give a specific Old Testament reference that would be impossible for him to miss. And yet, he didn't fully understand the meaning of this either because it hadn't been fulfilled fully. No one has gone, ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. 
This is a reference to Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 through 9, where the Israelites who were complaining were struck with a plague of poisonous snakes. And when they cry out for God's help and God's mercy, uh, Moses fashions this bronze snake and puts it on a pole, and it's lifted up. And everyone who has been bitten, if they look at that, if they just even see it, they'll be healed from their afflictions. So at a deeper level, Jesus is now talking about his crucifixion, where he will be physically lifted up on the cross and exalted as the Son of God. And all who look to the crucified Christ as Lord, they will be given new life and they will be healed from their afflictions. This is the reason why God does this. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. An interesting story I heard from another missionary who worked in South Africa. Uh, apparently they were having a kind of crusade and they were handing out free copies of New Testaments to different people. And as he was taking one of these copies to New Test of a New Testament, uh, to a guy, you know, the kind on the really thin Bible paper, special Bible papers, the thinnest paper I know of practically, you know. <laughs> he gives it to this guy in South Africa, and uh, this guy says, these words don't mean anything to me. I don't care one bit about this. And if you give me this Bible, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to rip the pages out of it, and I'm going to use it to roll my cigarettes in because... That's, I like that kind of paper for rolling my own cigarettes. And so this, this, this teacher uh, on this crusade said, you go ahead and take that and you do it, but glance at what those words are from time to time. And the guy said, okay, sure. So he takes this Bible and he goes, and in fact, that's what he does with it. He rips the pages out and he puts his tobacco in there or whatever rolls it up, smokes it. He smokes his way through Matthew. <laughs> he smokes his way through Mark. He smokes his way through Luke. He smokes his way into John. And somehow, these words from John 3.16 struck his heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that's the way the gospel works. You can just be going through the motions, just smoking your way through your relationships, smoking your way through my sermons, smoking your way through your prayers, through your Bible readings. And then, boom, something hits you. Something sticks. A word, 
a relationship, it strikes you to the core. And you relax your grip. Tears flood your eyes. You turn toward God and are open in ways that maybe you haven't been open before or it's been years. And we pause for a precious moment from fighting ourselves, from fighting other people, from fighting against God. Because that word from God penetrates somewhere in us. Other people, it's not a big boom. It kind of sneaks up on us the way the gospel works. It's just quietly growing there. And then we kind of look back like a weed in the pavement, in the crack in the pavement. Where did that come from? How did that get there? It sneaks up on us. And we wake up in those moments from our pride and our fear. We wake up from our guilt and our shame. And we realize, we realize God is not my enemy. God is not against me. He's here for me because He loves me. He loves this world that He created. And He becomes like me in my humanity, in my weakness, my limitations. He steps into that place to be with me. You see, Jesus, when He comes, He experiences temptation, pain, betrayal. Jesus saw firsthand the destruction that sin causes. Still, Jesus models what joyful confidence in God looks like. And even through the fog of our own sin and our own brokenness, something inside of us hopes. Hearing those words, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Because God came and because God loves, I have hope of eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It wasn't to condemn us that Jesus came. It's not like God decided, you know, they're making a mess of it. So you need to go let them know how disappointed I am. Go rub their nose in it a little bit. And tell them, it's over. You had your chance. No. Jesus is God's divine rescue mission. Jesus is God's divine rescue mission. God who enters into the depths and filth of humanity to save us, to heal us of our madness, and to teach us how to live. 
Jesus shows us what God is really like, that God can be trusted. Jesus shows us how to resist evil. Jesus shows us how to live or love other people well. Jesus shows us how to surrender our own will and align ourselves with the purposes and mission of God. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the life light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Sadly, there are many people who will go through this entire life in rebellion against God. They will not accept Jesus Christ as Lord. They will not give Jesus the time of day. But God continues to call anyway, to call all humanity to be saved through Jesus Christ. And as those who are born again through the water and through the Spirit, we must call all people to the foot of the cross. Many will not listen, but some will. Some will. And as we step into the light, we realize that all we are able to accomplish, all we do, it's by the grace of God. We're not able to own any of those good things. We're satisfied to be faithful sons and daughters of our Lord, to make Him look great and to magnify His name. Well, Christianity through the ages, a couple little stories and we'll be done. Christianity through the ages has had all kinds of interesting history and all kinds of interesting characters. So our next story comes out of Celtic Christianity uh, that developed in Ireland and then it spread into Scotland, northern Scotland, and through northern, uh, um, northern uh, England and then over into the continents, made its way all as far as uh, Switzerland and into Italy, some of these early Celtic monks. And so uh, there's this interesting character this guy, and he did a couple interesting things. I find this kind of history stuff fascinating. You know, you men who, um, you endured hours of teaching on the Desert Fathers. Well done. So here's another little kind of, uh, some of the things that they learned from the Desert Fathers that was applied in um, when St. Patrick went and became a slave and then later went back to uh, the people, the pagans in Ireland, and converted them to Christ. Uh, there's f- this whole different kind of spirituality of, of faithful Christians emerged in that time and that place. And so this is a story of uh, Brendan, St. Brendan the Navigator. He was a Celtic missionary, and he spent his life trying to convert pagan Ireland to Christianity. So he was born in Kerry, for those of you who know Ireland, I don't know where Kerry is from, you know. He was born in 484. 
And uh, he was called the navigator because he would get into boats and he would let himself be carried along by the currents and the winds. And wherever he traveled, he would tirelessly, whenever he would land again, he would tirelessly evangelize and establish monasteries, build churches. And he did this from the time when he was first ordained at 28 years old, set aside for for this purpose as a missionary. So the sixth century monk frequently sailed on the high seas and spread the gospel throughout Ireland as well as Scotland, Wales, and Brittany in the north of France. And according to a 1,500-year-old Irish tale, St. Brendan embarked on one particular epic journey in the winter of his 93rd year of life. According to the story, Uh, St. Brendan decides that he is going to find paradise and a land that was lurking just beyond the horizon. And for 40 days, St. Brendan feasted and prayed atop a mountain on a rugged uh, peninsula of a spindly finger of land that pointed west of Ireland and directly to North America. And he set out on the sea with 14 other monks. And who knows how far he made it. Uh, but they say he found some stuff and came back. And there's interesting stories. He, he discovered Iceland. He discovered the Faroe Islands. And so he was heading that way. And other monks were as well, setting, setting out to sea. Well, soon this kind of became a way of life for some people. There are soon early Celtic monks adrift at sea. They would get in these boats and they would set out and they would encounter all kinds of interesting uh, creatures in the ocean and they would land all kinds of interesting places. And so that became a way that they died to themselves. They became a martyr through, to the Lord. So they had red martyrdom, which was you spilled your blood uh, uh, to, in, in your faith in the Lord. And then white martyrdom, they said, was... Uh, just setting yourself out as a missionary. You give up your life, and I'm going to be the Lord's person now. And they would leave their home, and they would never come back. They would just go on these journeys. And they called it white martyrdom because wherever they would, uh, they would go, uh, they sailed into the white morning sky, into the unknown, never to return, it says. And they would refer to these spirit-guided voyages as this kind of martyrdom. And wherever they would land... Uh, they would labor to establish churches, they would labor to teach and evangelize, and they were crucial in the conversion of pagan hordes that had swept through Europe, destroying the Roman Empire. And so it's interesting the way the Lord works. You just look at these broad strokes of history. The Roman Empire is falling. All these barbarians come in. The church is destroyed a lot of places, and yet on this little remote island, Ireland, this vibrancy of faith springs up. Greek is preserved. The knowledge of the scriptures is preserved. And a missionary spirit these, these early Christians had, Celtic Christians, they go out. They're carrying themselves in the winds and letting the spirit guide. And wherever they go, they bring Christ with them. Jesus says the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit.
What's that saying is, as we become like the Spirit, we begin to move like Him. We begin to trust in His voice, her voice. We let ourselves be guided by the Spirit. And the presence of Christ goes with us everywhere we go. So let me ask you this question. Do you think of yourself as a missionary here in this place? Do you think of yourself as a missionary in this Eugene Springfield area? Or that's just something Calvin's supposed to do. Or there's, there's people at church that'll take care of that. You may have lived in this area your whole life. Or like me, you may be fairly new to this place. But for whatever reason, the Spirit has brought us together in a specific time, in a specific place, for God's specific purposes. Do you believe that? We also never know who the Lord is going to bring through these doors. We don't know. Think of this church, the Eugene Church of Christ, as a vessel, as a ship. You know, I, I look at this sometimes, and I w imagine what Noah's Ark looked like. I think if you flip the auditorium upside down, it's almost kind of like a ship already. Some of us are pretty comfortable in our ship or with this ship. Some of us act like this ship is anchored on solid ground. But you are a pilgrim and a wandering missionary. And you are called to be led by the Spirit. And he's had a hand in your being here. So the question you need to ask is, who are the people in your context of relationships? who are struggling at sea in danger of drowning. Who do you know in your context who needs a lifeline to be pulled into the safety of the community that lives on this ship called the Eugene Church of Christ? This church is not the final destination. This church is not our home country, but as those who have been born of the Spirit. We catch the wind of the Spirit, trusting that He will bring us to the home that we're longing for. He will bring us to the home of our souls, to God Himself. And we're never fully at rest and we're never fully secure until we are fully together with our Lord and Maker. Mobility is our way of life. How many of us live within 10 or even 100 miles of our birthplace? And how many of us have any idea where we will die? Physically, our life is a journey. Spiritually, too. We are always on the way in Via when we long to be in Patria. We are travelers 
and we are weary and homesick. It is a fact of life that travelers cannot survive in comfort without hospitality. However prudent their planning and abundant their supplies, if the journey goes on long enough, they will need the care of a host, someone who offers a temporary home as a place of rest and refreshment. You are those weary travelers. I am that weary traveler. We are in a community of weary travelers who are in need of a place of refreshing and rest and hospitality. And I think that's a vision of what we can be as a church in this place. We need to be reminded from time to time that God has launched His divine rescue mission. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that we can find our home together with God for all eternity, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So I don't know what your needs are this morning or how these words strike you, if they do at all. But just like Noah's Ark preserved life in the midst of storms, so the church is called to do the same thing. And if you need to be born of water and the Spirit in Christian baptism, we can help you with that. If you need the prayers of the church, if you need to help, uh, if we need help, we need, to help, we need to help each other learn how to be attentive and be guided by the Holy Spirit. If you need help with any of these things, you have an opportunity to come forward and share that need with me as we stand and sing together.